Hello everyone, welcome to SNIT. Studies in National and International Development is the longest running weekly interdisciplinary seminar series at Queen's University. Since 1983, SNIT has proudly hosted prominent Canadian and international scholars who bring fresh perspectives to issues of local, national, and global development. Please share our podcast with friends, family, and colleagues. We're glad to have you with us. Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to the third SNED of this term. Uh, on behalf of uh, co-chairs, myself, Aicha Tomac, and Carolyn Prowse, and our new coordinator, Moniki Asunsao, I welcome you to the longest-running interdisciplinary seminar series at Queen's University. Uh, we still have a number of events lined up for the term, and I will post them in the chat uh, shortly. Uh, SNID is hosted by Queen's University, which sits on the traditional territories of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy and the Anishinaabek Nation, and continues to benefit from ongoing colonization in the forms of extractions of resources, knowledges, and practices of indigenous peoples, not only in Kataraki, but around the Turtle Island. On behalf of SNID hosts who are settlers on this land, I would like to reiterate that SNID is committed to amplify the voices of scholars, activists, and artists who study, work, and create towards dismantling white supremacy and settler colonialism. With that note, we are thrilled to introduce co-editors and one contributing author of the book, Capitalism and Dispossession, Corporate Canada at Home and Abroad. Um, today, we have David P. Thomas, who is an editor of the book and associate professor at Mount Ellison University in the Department of Politics and International Relations. His core area of research and teaching is focused on the uh, role of Canadian actors, uh, such as corporations, NGOs, and the Canadian st state in the Global South. Dr. Uh, Valden Coburn is an editor of the book and an assistant professor uh, at the University of Ottawa School of Political Studies. Uh, Valden is Anishinaabe, uh, a member of the Algonquins of Pigwekanagan. Uh, Valden's primary research focus is on Indigenous politics and policy in Canada, with particular emphasis on political and economic theory. Dr. Rebecca Hall is a contrib contributor of contributing author of the book and an assistant professor in the Department of Global Development Studies at Queen's. Her scholarly publications have examined multiple sites of contemporary decolonizing struggle in Canada, including resource extraction, property relations, caring labors, and interpersonal violence. She's also a dear friend of SNED. Thank you all for this amazing book and for joining us today. Thank you, it's good to be back. It's good to see my supervisor too, Eleanor, and shows up. <laughs> yeah, it's good to be, uh, and I guess, yeah, no, um, I'll leave it to Rebecca and, and Dave if they want to, but I'm, I'm glad to see everyone turn out for this. It's kind of a nice return. Mm -hmm. so, so I guess I'll, uh, I'll start off. Um, I was going to just start with some preliminary remarks about the book in general um, and then we're going to pass it off to Veldin and Rebecca and they can they can speak more specifically about their own chapters. Veldin can also if he wants to speak a, a more generally about the book as well. Um, so first of all just some quick thanks. So thanks to uh, all the folks at SNID for organizing this. Um, 
it's uh, it, it, it's really great to to be virtually at Queens and uh, seeing everyone here. Um, and also uh, at these events, I always you know have a big shout out and thanks to Fernwood Publishing who who published the book. There's a lot of really fantastic uh, people working there in all kinds of different capacities, um, producing really solid, uh, really solid stuff coming out of Fernwood. Um, of course, a uh, big thanks to my co-editor, Belden Coburn. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the project was really enriched with, I think, with our, through our partnership and working together on this book. Um, so I was a big shout out to Belden. And of course, to the contributors, all the contributors of the book. Um, what, what some people may not know, and I certainly didn't know, uh, before I worked on an edited collection like this, uh, the contributors in a lot of ways can shape the content of the book, not just their own chapter, but otherwise. So just just one example, uh, Tracy Glynn, who wrote a chapter in the second half of the book on Canadian mining in Indonesia, uh, she's a friend of mine. She lives in Fredericton, New Brunswick. And so I asked her to write a chapter and she agreed. And then I had some other people in mind and I said, well, what about this person? And she said, yes definitely go ask that person. And when that person said yes, that person said, well, yes, if you, you should really contact this other person and, and, and that, so by speaking and working with the contributors, it, it shaped uh, the contents of the book. And we got, we have some really fantastic contributors that you'll hear more about uh, as we go here. Um, and then finally, um, uh, while I have this opportunity, I want to just, uh, uh, thank a number of people at Queens. For anyone who doesn't know, uh, I did my PhD at Queens. I was at Queens uh, from 2001 to 2006, uh, PhD in the Department of Political Studies, but also did a lot of uh, teaching assistant uh, work in the Global Development Studies uh, Department. So um, massive shout out to the people who I work with in the Department of Political Studies, in particular, Bruce Berman, who was my supervisor, uh, Eleanor McDonald, who's here uh, today, who's on my thesis uh, supervision committee. Uh, and I also worked with as a teaching assistant for one of her classes. Um, other people on my on my thesis supervision committee were Abby Backen, who's no longer at Queens, uh, Grant Amio, um, and then in the Global Development Studies Department, people who I worked very closely with, uh, Paratosh Kumar, David McDonald, and Mark Eprecht. Um, And I'll just uh, quickly say, I mean, when you, for those of you who know any of those people, uh, and if some of you might know all of those people, you put all those people together, and I, you can't even imagine a better group of mentors and supervisors and people to work with. I feel so blessed uh, that I came uh, that I came from Queens and worked with all those uh, really wonderful people. And it's it's uh, almost on a daily basis. Uh, I have them very close in my heart uh, all the time. So. Uh, thanks to all those people, uh, and at least one of them is here, and I can uh, uh, say that to Eleanor's uh, face today. So um, I just want to uh, squeeze that in. Now, I want to say a few things about the, the book. Now, um, the book, we started working on the book in 2019, and um, it arises first and foremost out of a long-standing interest I've had in Canadian corporations operating abroad. So in my previous work, I'd, I'd written a book on um, the Bombardier Corporation that looked at three of their uh, three of their high speed rail projects ab abroad, and I, and I turned that into a book. Um, and <clears throat> then eventually, I started thinking about making connections between my own work that looks at Canadian corporations operating abroad and some of the people that are looking at Canadian corporations and what they're up to, Canadian political economy, basically, and what's happening 
um, at, at home. So the idea behind the, the book was to bring together a set of case studies. The first half of the book looks at Canadian corporations in Canada, case studies in Canada, and the second half of the book looks at case studies abroad. So Veldin will tell you more about, about that, but he oversaw the first part of the, the first half of the book, and I oversaw the second half of the book. And then importantly, what we tried to do was start building um, connections between the two, though, because the literature um, tends to deal with these things separately. So there's a body of literature looking at Canadian firms overseas, and then other bodies of literature looking at Canadian political economy. And with a few, with uh, you know, a few notable ex exceptions in mind, um, the, the two are relatively siloed. So what Veldin and I were trying to do was uh, was think through the case studies and how they how they how they link together and how they how they connect and what kind of similarities and differences are there locally versus uh, um, uh, abroad. So that's what we 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 tried we tried to do, and a few of the kind of driving questions that I had in mind putting the project together is one sort of more of a longstanding interest uh, that I have in in, in global capitalism, um, with just thinking kind of broadly about where where do our profits and wealth come from, what kind of activities uh, take place out there that 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 bring wealth uh, into into this this country, and in particular, what's troubling about that uh, in a, in a lot of ways. Um, secondly, what role does the Canadian state play in facilitating this kind of accumulation? And as we talk about in the book, uh, uh, dispossession as well. Um, and uh, and then three, how are, how are how are again how I mentioned before? How are these things connected locally and and uh, and and globally? <clears throat> so um, we went about uh, collecting uh, collecting authors and case studies to fit into one or both sides of the of the uh, of the book. One of the keys to the entire edited collection is that we were trying to stress that um, the the cases and examples in the book were not cases of a, of a few bad apples or one particular or, or a handful of particular corporations that were acting poorly uh, or behaving badly, um, uh, but not rather not isolated cases, but rather inevitable an inevitable result of global capitalism and the violence and dispossession in the cases not being viewed as uh, uncommon or unexpected, but instead part of the very fabric of an economic system uh, the value people or the, or the planet. And doing so, we bring together uh, uh, sort of a, a broad range of theoretical lenses or, or perspectives, some sort of traditional political, political economy approaches like David Harvey's ideas around accumulation by dispossession. But the book also relies uh, heavily on feminist interventions, uh, analyses of settler colonialism and other forms of colonialism abroad, and also issues of race and racism. So, for example, in, in the first half of the book, we have a really fantastic chapter by Ingrid Waldron, um, who looks at uh, the, the issue, the, the, the case of the Alton gas uh, situation in, in Nova Scotia and uses the lens of environmental racism in, in her work and in her approach towards, uh, towards this chapter. Um, the other thing we we um, we tried to do with the edited collection <clears throat> was, uh, and this I, I really have to credit one of the editors at, at uh, Fernwood, uh, Candida Hadley, who um, because it was my first time and Veldin's first time putting together an edited collection, she sat me down very early in the process and 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 said, uh, "Listen, when you're crafting a book like this, if you want it to be cohesive and if you want it to flow together, think about." 
what kind of cases you want and, and what kind of things you want to address in the book, and then go find the people who can, who can do those things. So instead of just kind of like this shotgun approach where you just have a call for papers and just take anything and everything that comes in, actually think very carefully at the beginning about what you want this to look like. And that's the approach that, that, that we took. So for example, in the second half of the book, the cases abroad, I wanted to uh, have a broad range of geographic cases, right? So I have, so we have, there's a case from Indonesia, there's a case from Guatemala and a case from Burkina Faso. I wanted to hit different regions um, of, uh, of, of the world. So that was sort of how we, how we uh, went about it. The other goal was to open up space for people to tell the stories of, of Canadian corporate dispossession, either at home uh, or abroad. So this, this meant bringing together uh, scholars, activists, journalists, um, people with careers in the NGO uh, sector. So bringing people together who, who have been doing this work on the ground in the places where the cases are, are, are happening. Uh, and also bring people into the collection who are involved in the political struggles inherent in all the cases uh, in, in the book. So for example, in, in the second half of the in the second half of the book, there's a chapter written by Sakura Saunders. And uh, for those of you who don't know her, she's a longtime uh, journalist and activist focusing on mining, mining justice and mining injustice uh, issues uh, in, in many parts uh, of, of the world. And another example would be there's a chapter in the book on, on Canadian mining in Guatemala in the second part of the book. It's written by three people. One of them is Jennifer Moore, who for a very long time worked at Mining Watch, uh, Mining Watch Canada. Yeah. So that was that was the other thing I was trying to, you know, we were trying to, to to bring in kind of not just academics. I mean, we have some really solid academics in the collection as well, but also some people outside of academia who are who are more involved politically with the, with the struggles on the ground. So I'm going to uh, I'm going to stop there just with that broad introduction to the book and and pass it over to uh, to uh, Velden. Go ahead, uh, Velden. Yeah, thanks, Dave. Um, sort of like Dave said, but I only really mentioned and barely prefaced that this is sort of kind of the return for for me to to Queens even virtually because I am also the product of the uh, the Department of Political Studies there. I mentioned briefly that Eleanor was my supervisor there, so. Um, Dave and I had that sort of uh, shared background. Uh, he was there prior. I came a few years afterwards, and um, in, in a weird sort of way too, just the the genesis and like from from cradle and you know maybe off to the to the grave, but through the life is that uh, has Eleanor dragged me across the finish line for my PhD. <laughs> um, Dave had also kind of dragged me across the finish line for the editing of this volume, and and most of the heavy work was done by him. So. Um, perhaps he glossed over a little bit and was a bit too humble about uh, the origins of it, but it, it's very much a contrived project by Dave himself because the proposal was um, really detailed and crafted and, and considered rather than, as he says, the shotgun approach. So the discussions that we had back in the summer of 2019, when I didn't know the, the full extent of what he had prepared for the project, when he invites me on says well maybe if we divide it up and he says like i you know i because he had written his book um bombardier abroad critical of the canadian state and his backing of um you know one of Canada's most prized and flagship corporations and pride of 
Canadian expansion around the world and um, <coughs> industrial pride as well for technology, um, the bad behavior overseas. And so you have me and it's not like really just the disciplinary siloing, um, but really the scholarship reflects that that siloing is that Dave being, well, he's not really international relations if he tells you he's, he's comparativist. And then me not having any kind of sense of international relations whatsoever, um, aside from that half credit course I took as an undergrad and never took again. Uh, so I did Canadian politics and political theory with with Eleanor. Um, and uh, and then that's the lens that I approached Indigenous politics in Canada. So batting around a few ideas, and I remember talking to, and it was with, with Eleanor, I said, well, you know, when she was asking me what I was teaching last year, I said, well, you know, I've, I've, I've gone back to a few other texts and it, and I've almost become a bit cliche in the more popular conscious that I taught Hannah Arendt's The Origins of Totalitarianism. A lot of them, a lot of people want to study that, I guess, in reflection of right-leaning governments around the world and the shifts that on that slippery slope can go from authoritarianism to what some people would say is uh, totalitarianism. But in three parts of the book, it's the it's part two on imperialism. So the five or so chapters of that book, really speaking about uh, imperial expansion into Africa and Asia, uh, it's colonialism. So each of those chapters that it goes through, so the bourgeoisie um, really trying to escape the hands of political power, at least take political power to far off distant places to um, to behave badly in the same way that organized capital does today, but with the backing of the colonial crowns in here, we might have the organized modern state, uh, and, well, Canadian state anyways. But what they're doing is turning the Canadian hinterlands, which basically were Indigenous peoples are relegated to today, um, in our remote sort of even our reserves, but like the large expanse of our territories, um, far from urban centers of where the um, organization or the concentration of wealth amongst the capital elites of the capital class are managing things uh, to bring the perspective of part two of the origins of totalitarianism uh, because it's pre-totalitarianism but it's 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 the brutality of colonialism and um, and and though Hannah Arendt has become a little bit popular it's like well we're going to start analyzing uh, social politics through the lens of well because she's really suspicious of, of um, modern liberal societies sliding in that particular direction. And like the, she never really says what are the origins, but she says essentially colonialism lays the groundwork for going in and treating individuals very like as, as subhuman entities and uh, not just treating, but reproducing or at least transforming those that carry the atrocities out as themselves, well, reducing themselves to uh, subhuman entities that are incapable of, of, of a humanity themselves. So um, the, the interest that I had here, and I hadn't never really read about it, and, and a few people know the, the personal story behind it, is that although I'm Algonquin, half of my family too are Ojibwe, and they come from grassy narrows so it's one of the more tragic places of capital 
brutality that's not necessarily a concerted genocide but 90 percent of the people in the two reserves up there it's normally just grassy narrows and i can't pronounce the long names is to at least focus on that just to sort of honor my own kin family um because um and even last year uh one of the half siblings on my my sister's side uh he ended up passing away in his 40s but uh, my sister passed away at age six, um, and, and we can't really trace it back to the mercury poisoning, but but born with all the deformities uh, and um, and a weakened immune system in, in such a way that uh, a flu in them, turned into pneumonia and uh, become septic that her immune system could not handle. And it's um, incidentally, uh, you know, it's it's right around. Um, this this time in in October of 1985 when I was a young kid that she passed away um that uh I I did want to address it but not get into sort of the personal stuff so it, it is a personal chapter for me and I discussed this with Dave uh there was another proposed chapter but one of the um co-authors and I've, I've written with him before he's a philosopher out in British Columbia now but uh uh Devin Shaw we we he was a bit too busy and we wanted to address um, the Algonquin dispossession. So essentially how has organized capital gone into far off places as though it's similar to um, the out of sight, out of mind, bad behavior of uh, corporate practices that Dave and those that um, uh, are contributing to part two, disposition, dispossession and abroad, what about the same things at home? And it, it makes its way into the public consciousness through the news. We do see some of the violent course of extractions of, of people. So removal still is ongoing in Sequempic and uh, Wet'suwet'en territory, paramilitary sort of raids and invasions by the RCMP, all in the service of organized capital, largely energy corporations that want and they do demolish their own homes still so the tiny house warriors that have their own tiny house village set up on their territory has that raised uh, the same probably i think even last fall at around this time and, and and of course to more not necessarily with the state's backing but with the state's complicity and that they look away until things get really bad down in the east coast with the the lobster uh, industry and the Mi'kmaq exercising their treaty rights. Uh, but here, I wanted to bring Hannah Rent to look at, um, and th this was the theoretical framework that we, we brought, inspired by um, Glenn Coulthard. Uh, he came and spoke at the University of Ottawa last night, and, um, and I'm going out for dinner with him tonight. Uh, he, some of his work uh, about laying bare the myth that uh, those initial momenta, as David Smith might say, of the uh, transition from, say, a feudal society or a pre-capitalist society to um, how we might find ourselves today. So the social organization where we normally or we no longer live off the land, we cannot freely harvest and produce our, our means of subsistence from it. Rather, it's mediated through uh, commerce and market economics, all with the goal of the neoliberal profit motivation. So it's not just uh, mercantilism of zero-sum exchange or what have you, but there is an extraction of surplus value. 
And I wanted to look at um, how do they extract that surplus value from, from things that really hasn't made it into the literature. And I wanted to look at water. So when you think of the case of grassy narrows, it was pollution on an industrial scale. So dumping uh, 10,000 kilograms of untreated mercury into a waterway, which is the life form, life source of uh, the Ojibwe in their territory. Uh, is how do you accumulate um, through, like, as David Harvey in New Imperialism brings this forward, is the accumulation by dispossession. So capitalism relies upon these crises, and we can see it in the finance crises, is that, well, they come and say, well, you, you can no longer afford to hold on to these financial assets or the financialization of assets, whether it's in the form of mortgages of your home, so in the United States, it is the dispossession of, of homes from uh, some prime borrowers because of the financial crisis. So they get it for a song, as it were, and then they put it back on the market is that they never really had capital reproduce itself. It's just ongoing theft and it's the nice form of theft. It's like, well, you can no longer, I'm, I'm going to recirculate your capital because I'm not going to reproduce capital. I'm just going to take what's already existing. And that's sort of uh, the a new form of the primitive mode of, of accumulation is like, I'm going to shuttle people off the lands and close the commons, privatize what they, they once had, and then sell it back to them. Uh, so in this form, it's really, I'm, I'm, you know, to use the uh, subprime mortgage lending crisis and the financialization in the United States is uh, I'm going to enclose what was not necessarily a commons, but dispossess them of what had been privatized to them and then resell it back to them. So you, you accumulate the value by taking something but what about with water and pollution is you don't go and steal the whole river and it's 180 kilometers of, of waterways uh you leave it in a different state uh chemically anyways so for anyone who might think about it it's like well pollution really changes the chemical and biological constitution of it uh but they left it there but what they did was they took the value from it so it's water that's been changed that doesn't really have, and this is, you know, very Marxist of the use value. Um, it was there also treated as a place for exchange value in that uh, corporations can offset their costs. So subsidize their profits because otherwise they would have had to have paid for um, the treatment of of the mercury to properly store it and not find the commons. So this is the Ojibwe commons that they still maintain, that they access for their subsistence, of which uh, any kind of modern conception of use value, that basically it could be drinking or where their food arrives, which they can no longer really eat. Otherwise, they risk uh, great neurological um, diseases and other deleterious conditions because they just can't eat it. 90% uh, of the population suffers from some form of um, neurotoxic uh, mercury poisoning and so uh, extensive disabilities it crosses the blood um, placenta barrier for children and developmental disabilities um, and uh, they're left with something that is transformed into something else and uh, so it's as some of the emerging literature and it's very really new is just what is another mode of the accumulation by dis dispossession is contamination so they're not really dispossessing of them of them. They haven't shuttled them off the land like the peasants 
in say you know feudal Europe is saying well no longer can you live in your cottage you can't harvest the timber to build your your home uh, you can't harvest the water now you have to pay for it because it's been privatized here they really haven't taken it from them and, but they have taken it in a way that it's not usable anymore and, and in public economics they call it negative externalities that it, that when a corporation uh, externalizes costs so the spillovers that they might have and that's what I wanted to at least address and try to talk about more of the history through the 1960s, but um, where the contamination was occurring and into the contemporary politics, because it was 50 years since the discovery. And it's only been 50 years because this particular case of pretty egregious uh, public pollution introduces uh, an environmental protection regime, not a whole lot of teeth in it in, in Ontario, but in 1970, early 1970s when they say you know stop dumping and the corporation did not it um, uh, it introduces that law but um, there's all this sort of sense that in northwestern Ontario that it was ripe for uh, a capitalist mob is to send the debris of human societies like you know the workers that would go up there is downtown Toronto or in the centers of, of finance could be Montreal or New York or even London and Paris these were the headquarters of these corporations because it changed hands several times of these large conglomerate uh, lumber and pulp and paper companies that um, they had little care for their labor as well and they had little care for the people that lived up there it was just a place for extracting value um, for profit and 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 that's what I try I attempt to do through the, the chapter on grassy narrows uh, I talk a little bit about changing hands of uh, the corporations going through the various different incarnations through the 1970s how the state had subsidized so the settlements also investing in the infrastructure so upgrading some of the pulp and paper mill in Dryden Ontario to to essentially subsidize uh, the the brutality that had been visited upon the Ojibwe grassy narrows um, all in the name of capital accumulation and, uh, and and profit driven motivation so i hope i've achieved that uh and and again the story that hannah rent tells in the various chapters unfolding of uh you know race thinking before racism and then race and bureaucracy is how INAC had stepped into the picture to manage indigenous peoples to sort of moderate a settlement as well um, between two parties because they got a, a, a former justice, the Ontario Superior Court, and said, well, this is going to be a class action, but we kind of have to, you know, save the uh, save the corporations, um, and which was settled in the mid-1980s and not really fulfilled up until about a year ago. So uh, it's contemporary, but um, I, I hope it brings a new perspective for people thinking um, certainly Ingrid Waldron does as well, especially around the potential for pollution of waterways down in Migamagi with uh, Alton gas. But um, yeah, I'll leave it at that if I spoke too long. But um, you know, for this work, and and, and I think um, if it, I hope it doesn't sound too hokey, but like as the homecoming is sort of like to say to um, to Eleanor as well as that, uh, you know. I'm glad that I could leave the nest and, and go off and produce some scholarship as, as well here. Uh, all the inspiration that she had given me over the years to, um, yeah. So, so yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm thankful for, for all that and the support and um, I'm grateful to come back here to SNID where, 
you know, every Thursdays, I remember Thursdays for as long as I can remember when I was there that uh, now I'm finally part of it. So thank you. <laughs> Okay, I think it's it's my turn. Um, Dave and Belden, it's just it's been so nice to hear about your your academic histories, and and I think this is Belden a, a way better version of homecoming that we're uh, that we're doing right now. Um, and I see you're wearing the the Queen's hoodie, so that's so great. <laughs> it's the it's the only hoodie I have, and um, and uh, the the furnace isn't working too well right now, so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, all right, so I, I was one of the contributors um, and uh, was, was so happy to be a contributor for this book. Um, the, the thoughtfulness and the care um, that's evident in what Dave and Belden are, are saying about how the book was put together was certainly um, very evident in the experience of making the book. Um, both Dave and Belden were just really wonderfully generous um, and, and thoughtful editors and, and gave us this fabulous framing. I remember um, when, uh, when Dave first reached out to me and, and described the project, um, I was so excited because I, so I do a lot of work on, on resource extraction and um, I often, I, I frame it resource extraction, not as, not as an aberration to the general workings of capitalism, but as, as an intensified expression of, of capital's violence. So I was very excited when, when Dave proposed this book and uh, really enjoyed working with both of you. And it just to highlight what was said in the chat, you can get the book, which I have right here, had a novel idea. Um, and, uh, and I highly recommend it. Um, so I'll, I'll get into some of the substance of, of the chapter that I wrote. Um, the, the chapter is called The Gendered Violence of Canadian Extraction. And uh, I'll, I'll start off by just telling you a little bit about uh, the theory with which I engage, um, which, which like, like Veldin, uh, was, was concerned with processes of dispossession, um, both, both past and present. And, uh, and then I, I go through three case studies in the chapter, um, but I think for now I'll just I'll speak about one of them. So the three chapters that I talk, or the three case studies that I talk about are uh, Meadowbank Gold Mine, which is a mine in Nunavut, uh, the diamond industry in the Northwest Territories, which involves four mines, and generally speaking, the oil and gas industry in BC and Alberta. And uh, in the chapter I do, I, I speak to the continuities of violence uh, within Canada's borders and transnationally, but I really do focus on extractive projects within Canada and uh, and on Indigenous land. Um, so because of that, um, I sort of I start off in the chapter talking about a general gender violence to extraction. Um, but because Canada's political economy is built upon the dispossession of Indigenous peoples, um, I really do focus on the intersections of settler colonial and gender violence. Um, so I'll start there by talking a little bit about the gendered violence of colonialism itself, and, and here I'm drawing upon the work of many wonderful Indigenous scholars um, who noted that extractive violence to the land um, and violence against Indigenous bodies are not discrete. So for example, Rana Kakonin, who's a Sami scholar, and Audra Simpson, a Mohawk scholar, conceptualize settler colonialism as gendered violence. Um, and they argue that structural processes of colonial oppression and dispossession can't be divorced from indigenous women's experiences of violence done to their bodies and to their lives. Um, so Audra Simpson talks about this genocidal impulse um, 
as it articulates in contemporary manifestations of embodied violence. And she says evocatively, she says, Canada requires the death and so-called disappearance of indigenous women to secure its sovereignty. Um, and we see this in grassroots indigenous approaches to gender violence as well. So in, I think it was 2019, the inquiry on missing and murdered indigenous women uh, published their report um, that really did look at gendered violence as not something that happens sort of as a side effect of capitalism, but as part of, or as capitalist colonialism, but as part of capitalist colonialism itself. And, and there's a section of that report that talks in particular to uh, the gendered violence of extraction. And this report comes out of decades of work done by groups like the Native Women's Association uh, and Sisters in Spirit who have been pointing to this violence. Um, so these groups and, and the report itself, um, or voices within the report, talk about the necessity of linking sort of specific acts of violence to their colonial uh, to their colonial roots because obscuring the links by individualizing violence, which is something that's often done, or depoliticizing specific acts of violence is very much a, a colonial strategy. Um, so materially, uh, indigenous women are targets of ongoing processes of dispossession, not only because they signify a living alternative to capitalist accumulation via destruction, but because they actually reproduce that alternative. Um, so in speaking to that, um, in the chapter, I draw upon both indigenous feminisms and also feminist political economy uh, and socialist theorists who have demonstrated that the capitalist annexation of new spaces of accumulation requires a particular violence against women um, and also a violence against their reproductive labors in order to discipline them towards the demands of capital and, and associated the, the sovereignty of the state. So here I, I drew a fair bit on Sylvia Federici, Angela Davis, and Maria Mize. Um, Sylvia Federici argues that capitalist production is made possible only through an ongoing violent appropriation of women's lives and bodies. Um, and to me, this, this really offers an important insight for a decolonizing feminist analysis of the violence of extractive capital. And that is that violence against women, which is often treated as a sort of irrational um, aberration from the norms of, or sort of liberal capitalist norms is instead a deeply rational practice. So it's tied to capital's material reliance on the unpaid activities, which are integral to social reproduction, um, and also tied to the relationship between patriarchy and capitalism. And Maria Mize has a great quote to this effect. She says, if, if violence against women is not accidental, but part of modern capitalist patriarchy, then we have to explain why this is so. We have to look for reasons which are central to the functioning of the system as such. And I, I really love that quote um, because what it does is it, first of all, of course, denaturalizes violence against women. And often it is very naturalized, especially in state approaches to violence against indigenous women. And it calls for explanation and redress, which to me is a really great social justice call. Um, so that is the call that I'm sort of interacting with in, in the book chapter. And I, I approach Canadian extraction as an expression of colonial gendered violence rather than examining gendered violence as a consequence of extraction. So in doing so, we can start thinking about why sites of resource extraction and their surrounding communities 
tend to be spaces with greater levels and severity of different forms of gender violence than other industries. And here I'm thinking about gender violence in extractive spaces, both about specific acts of violence and general cultures of violence, like what is considered okay to talk about when it comes to how men speak about non-men and, and that kind of thing. Um, so to get into the why question, what I do in the chapter is I talk in particular about the turn towards fly-in, fly-out mining in Canada or drive-in, drive-out mining. And that is, um, I'm guessing most of you know, the, the sort of, it's, it's what the name sounds like. So it means that instead of the mining town being built up around the mining site, people are flying in and flying out or driving in or driving out. Um, and what this does is it creates both physically, it creates a separation between the space of home uh, and, and the mining site, but it's also sort of creates a symbolic separation. Um, mining sites become sites of exception where the cultures and the norms of home don't exist. And it's sort of imagined that, you know, the what happens at the camp can stay at the camp. Um, but of course, in reality, although there is a physical separation, these sites are not truly separate from people's homes. And also they continue to operate on indigenous homes. They're really only separate from settler towns, right? Um, so women, indigenous and not, have largely been tasked with managing the spatial divide between the place of home, which tends to be a feminized place, and the place of work tends to be a masculinized place. Um, and I argue that a focus on their labors and experiences elevates the violence of this spatial and temporal approach to extraction in Canada. Um, also, another gendered element of fly and fly out uh, work is that because fly and fly out workers live at camp for weeks at a time, so they have these small camps attached to the mine site, the daily social reproduction of workers is made possible by paid labor at camp. Um, like cooking and housekeeping um, that is often performed by women, and when it comes to the provincial and territorial north, often performed by Indigenous women. Um, so for this, um, there's been a fair bit of research that has shown that these sorts of jobs, unsurprisingly, don't have the same sorts of stability or labor protections that sort of traditional extractive work has. Um, this work has especially come out of the oil and gas industry where they found that camp workers, so people who are sort of maintaining the camp, tend to work in very, very precarious positions um, and that there's much higher rates of um, harassment against camp workers, who again tend, tend to be women. Um, and to speak to the precarity of those jobs, I'm going to start talking about Meadowbank Goldmine. I know I don't have a whole lot of time left, but just quickly I'll talk about Meadowbank Goldmine. Um, so Meadowbank Gold Mine, like I said, uh, it's a mine that opened up in Nunavut in uh, 2010 um, that employs a high number of uh, Inuit workers, uh, including Inuit women. Um, and many of these Inuit women work in these sort of these housekeeping and cooking jobs. Um, but they've found, and, and this has uh, been talked about in a fair bit of research by Pauk Tutit, an Inuit women's organization, that their jobs are extremely precarious along gendered lines. So for example, uh, pregnant Inuit women have been dismissed from their positions and uh, many others have had to leave because of social reproduction responsibilities. And, uh, and what I argue in the chapter is that it's not this, this sort of pregnancy as such or, or women's households and community responsibilities that make mining work inaccessible to women, but it's rather the structures of fly and fly out mining. So the lawn inflexible shifts far away from home that create that precarity. 
Um, however, characterizing women workers as temporary and thus sort of untrainable um, absolves the mining industry from the costs of higher wages and worker benefits, protection and training, and, uh, and so becomes a form of structural violence that is an, in and of itself an enabler of acts of interpersonal and embodied violence. Um, so here I'm largely drawing on a few reports that Pabtutit put out about the experience of Inuit workers in these mines. And uh, a number of the women who they interviewed had worked as housekeepers, and they said that housekeeping is an activity that sets women up for many of the problems they experience working at the mine. It brings them into close proximity with a predominantly male workforce and the spaces they occupy when living and working at the mine. The intimate characteristics of housekeeping work and the gendered ways in which this work has been degraded are intensified by the hypermasculinity of extractive workspaces work and the isolation of the camp. So participants in the Pauktutit study describe men leaving um, intimate, like, intimate things like bodily fluids for them to clean up and, uh, and consistent sexual harassment. And this gender violence at the mine site interacted with the gender violence at home as well. So while women were experiencing violence at the mines, their homes life, home life started to shift as more and more men were working at the mine. And so these women also reported greater incidents of violence at home, both in the community and in the households. Um, so just uh, by way of conclusion, I wanted to yeah, I think I'll I'll just um, I'll quote Helen Knott, who's this really wonderful activist from Prophet River First Nation, um, who does a lot of work on the gender violence of extraction, and she says that in confronting these these spaces of gender violence, uh, we need to connect the protection of land with the fight against violence against Indigenous women and girls. And she says, surely this will strengthen our capacity to protect our original mother to become whole again. Um, and uh, and yeah, I'll I'll leave it there. Uh, thank you all. Um, I will open the floor for questions. You can either use the chat function or raise your hand. While waiting, maybe I can ask a quick, oh, there we go, Carolyn. I can ask a question. Um, thank you so much, everyone. This was really lovely. And I like, I mean, I'd like to hear kind of conceptually what you're grappling with within the book, but then also how you approached writing a book and edited volume. I think that that was really helpful as well. Um, so thank you for that and, and sharing your, your intentionality with that. I have a very kind of basic question, but it is tying together this idea of, or what you're trying to do in the book, right? And think about what's happening in Canada and then also how Canadian corporations are operating internationally and globally. And I'm wondering like if you like in, in the introduction or in any of the chapters, you think through the role of the state and what the role of the state is nationally and to foster this like international kind of extraction and the different kinds of logics that are like imbued within that state approach. and. And like, what is this, like, how does the state's role differ when it comes to like national kinds of extraction versus more global forms of extraction in, in supporting these kinds of, of corporations? That, that's a great question, uh, Carolyn. Thank you for that. I'll let Velvin talk to about this a little bit too, because uh, definitely in the introduction and the conclusion, we, we, uh, we try to grapple with this. And one of the, I mean, one of the things we try to point out is that the Canadian state is very, 
involved, right, in, in both sides of the book, really, in the cases in both sides um, of the book. Maybe I'll just say one thing and then pass it to Belden. One of the differences I think that we see is that uh, in the second half of the book, when looking at the in international cases, sometimes you see um, uh, parts of the Canadian state involved that wouldn't be involved in within Canada. For example, um, Foreign Affairs Canada, basically uh, the, the Foreign Service and, and, and the diplomats. That's one of the key ways that the Canadian state supports corporations abroad, right? So, so negotiating free trade deals with with some with particular countries, um, using diplomatic avenues. The chapter on Guatemala actually it focuses almost entirely on the Canadian state's um, use of diplomacy to uh, grease the wheels, basically, of getting the mining projects up and running, and also discrediting any opposition to to the mines. So that I think that was one of the key differences that we saw, just the involvement, like the dip, the diplomatic angle on on uh, the involvement. But I don't know if you want to say anything else about that, building. Sure. So in the Canadian example, there's um, two really good chapters, uh, and they they're back to back. So you can read one by Aidan Alderson. He's a professor in Toronto. He's McMaya. Um, he read uh, his chapters suppression of indigenous sovereignty in Canada's consent by default industry. So he's looking at uh, land management. He has a background um, also in like I think urban planning and geography. But he saw sort of the technocratic approach by governments is is to maintain these powers, and you also see it in the the next chapter with Don Hugavine and, and Russell Myers Ross in Silkatine, uh, the zombie mine resurrection. So the fourth world is emerging in the environmental assessment processes that are used really. And uh, you know one of the things that are just sort of taken for granted is that the state will hold on to these and they will be the ones that um, use sort of scientific management to determine how land will be used. So it leads any kind of claims to sovereignty by indigenous peoples to say, well, it's take that taken for grantedness is that these large scale industrial projects will be, um, are, are just gonna happen anyway. So the states hand in hand with a corporation, all they have to do is, is acquire or at least manufacture consent um, or at least consent is assumed that uh, by dint of the law and the bureaucracy uh, that they, they will go in and be able to to say, well, we're going to uh, plot out this particular land. I, we don't care that it's still unceded indigenous territory as well that you're still living on it is like that's the site of your residency anyways, that we have now plans for this. And it is actually just for not necessarily well, mostly for extraction as well, but for large-scale corporate uh, ventures anyway. So the state maintains that in that, again, the technocratic sense. Um, the chapter that I had was uh, sort of bailing out corporations too. So there's the fight on the one hand for the Ojibwe who say, well, um, over a thousand of us are, and, and people have died. So one of the large, the I guess one of the, biggest names in the champion of the cause is Steve Fobister, who was at one time chief, but if you see him in so, uh, archive um, imagery and, and uh, video from news reports going back to the 1970s is the one that's, you know, uh, blowing the whistle on this, you know, he's, he's sort of shaky because, you know, the neurological conditions and the muscular neurological connection is, is really bad just because of the, uh, um, the, the toxins and what have you. 
uh, is that they have to fight the states because the state was hand in hand with these corporations to say like, well, what about the safety of us, uh, the integrity of our human safety as, as individual persons, the security of our persons. Uh, meanwhile, the state is dumping millions of dollars into even like factory upgrades, the uh, promoting these industries, like the job creators as it might be. Um, so they have the power of sovereign revenue, sovereign debt that they can conscript from normal other people and then transfer that over to organized capital. Uh, also laying bare the myth that uh, capital or at least is a free market whatsoever um, that without the state helping along organized corporate power, it's not really corporate power, it's, you know, in the Hannah rent sense is that the bourgeoisie want the powers of the state to be able to act as though they can go in and, and they basically do so um, and, and, and use the violence of the state against Indigenous peoples, whether it's in Asia or Africa, as Hannah Arendt points out, but here in Canada, where we see, see the images in the news of corporations saying, well, get those Indians off the land because we have a corporate project going through here. The state says, well, yeah, um, and I think there was a report that came out in the TIE recently, and I'll just kind of Google it quite quickly here. They've spent, I think, $25 million, um, uh, I just saw the news, like, uh, yeah, so two days ago, RCMP spending on pipeline conflict uh, reaches 25 million. So it is basically the bodyguards of a corporation. I mean, it's a, it's a corporate person. And of course, the decisions are being made at uh, Coastal Gaslink, their headquarters. I don't know if it's in Vancouver or whatnot, but uh, pipeline workers and individual contractors have the backing of course of power of the state for them to uh, remove the indigenous people. So yeah, it's the raw, brutal power that they also, that corporations can lay claim to in partnership with the state. Thank you. Rebecca, is there anything that you would like to add? Or? Oh, no, that's okay. I'll, I'll leave you with what Eldon said. All right. Uh, next, Murad. Uh, yeah, thank you uh, all. Thanks for this great event and thanks for giving me the space. Actually, uh, uh, I just uh, saw news yesterday, it is for October uh, 5th. Uh, I could send the news into the chat box. I just sent it. Uh, it was uh, a news about the uh, 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 drone attack on Kurdish uh, opposition group, uh, Iranian Kurdish opposition group in northern Iraq. So Iranian uh, drones, uh, the debris, a picture of the debris shows that the motor engine is uh, uh, Rotax, uh, an Austrian, and then, yeah, definitely owned by a Canadian, by the Canadian bombardier. So the same company uh, 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 used to sell, and um, I think that still continues to sell this engine to Turkish uh, drone industry, which used in uh, Turkish invasion uh, uh, in 2019 of northern Syria. So uh, I just wanted to make this point and ask uh, how, how, like, this industrial complex uh, works to maintain imperial order and works to, you know, uh, uh, provide a basis for cooperating of 
forces which rhetor rhetorically they're opposing each other. Look, Iran is still being seen by, I think, thousands as an anti-imperialist guy in West. And then at the same time, it is using the same, you know, technology to kill its opposition. And then, uh, yeah, so at the same time, Canada announced sanctions stuff, and uh, it is selling these engines to Iran, you know, at the middle of all these noisy things about sanctions and and uh, uh, all other, you know, uh, uh, superficial and fake sort of solidarity with people and uprising in Iran. So uh, the, I just wanted to add to make this point and ask uh, uh, a bit more about the the history of these these uh, cooperation and stuff. Uh, although you. I need to read the book for sure, but just wanted to make this point. Thank you. Yeah, if I can just say uh, quickly, thank you uh, for that, and thank you for pointing that out. Um, in fact, the when I, when we uh, were initially putting the book together, uh, one of the key things I wanted to include in the book was the chapter on on Canadian weapon sales abroad, um, and and we had a person who was doing it, and in the end, it was it was the only it was the only uh, chapter that didn't make it into the book because um, the person just couldn't get the chapter completed. Um, um, so it's really too bad because I think you're what you're talking about is really important. And that was, I think, in, when you when we're thinking about Canadian corporate actors abroad, the weapons industry, I think, is is really, really important to think about. Thank you. Uh, Eleanor. You're on mute. Great. Um, first, I, I have to say thanks for all the very kind comments that Dave and Belden both made. And it's really a pleasure to see both of you and also, of course, Rebecca. Um, the question I wanted to ask was really a follow-up to um, Carolyn's question, which is um, the, the responses that you gave were largely about the coercive function of the state in relation to this uh, issue of dispossession. And, and it may well be that in the examples in the book that that's the primary way in which the state is experienced. But I'm wondering if, if either your own reflections or um, if, if this comes up in some chapters of the book, um, uh, the, the sort of the, manu the, the organization of consent to uh, dispossession um, by the state or also um, by corporate actors to, um, and, and I know that in, in the case of indigenous politics, it's often uh, introduces some significant divisions um, within some of these communities. Um, and I don't claim to know enough to be able to like get into any detail about that, but like what, what Swetton comes to mind that there are certainly others. So I'm wondering if um, maybe just as, as a follow-up to Carolyn's question, like questions about the state's involvement in this might be a really interesting way to also tease some of that out. Thanks. I, I, could, I could start with this. So we didn't get too far into it. Um, I thought, and, and, and we do make mention of it in the introductory chapter, Dave and, I, and myself, where we, we start talking about the theory and we introduce a bit of the metabolic rift, um, the social metabolism 
it doesn't make its way too much into much of the chapters. Uh, so that's a bit of the philosophy of alienation that Marx introduces and ecological theorists um, or ecological social theorists have been starting to revisit is the idea of, and, and this is where, how does the state come in? So I think this, the, the neoliberal modern state, not really directly in any way, kind of, I mean, it's all sort of normalized um, and, uh, and it's a really lazy response <laughs> to say, well, what does the state do? It kind of normalizes and, and within the tensions within indigenous communities to say, well, now we have to treat the, uh, the natural environment around us as something of which has been severed from our, our, our relationship is like the, uh, the human and non-human world is, is no longer really mingles. There's not an intersubjective relationship anymore. It is, it is an object for human mastery over and therefore it's alienated in a way that's um how does the state normalize that uh it, it just seems the progression of the alienating ethos um and i think this is kind of what again in hannah Arendt as well because she says how do we start viewing ourselves as really distinct from one another to such an extent that we can treat not just the natural world around us as our own dumping site as garbage as something to be as as an object that we can manipulate uh to our own ends and that's you know when she starts saying like how when, when that's when we start doing it to other humans that's sort of the totalitarianism as as, as well um um how does how do we experience the state in such a way i don't know we didn't really get into a whole lot we we sort of viewed it too is is sort of as as marx would almost through all of the chapters uh i, I don't think we're all marxists here but it, we just use it sort of as a diagnostique that the state is still as as he says in the communist manifesto the executive committee or of the um of the bourgeoisie of, of organized capital so it carries out the work um for for capitalists to lead the capital capital class but how in other ways yeah that's it doesn't really come out i think in, in many of the chapters because we yeah maybe i could just add one thing to that uh Belden. um in the second part of the book there's a, a the chapter written by uh sakura saunders um it's really interesting because it kind of gets i i think it might get a little bit at what you're asking eleanor so what she documents in that chapter is the history of civil society organizations within Canada trying to build a, um, a system of accountability for Canadian mining companies abroad. And what she documents is the Canadian state uh, back in, the, you know, about 15 years ago had set up a process. Uh, they called it the roundtable process where um, civil society, business and the state came and sat down and talked about mining abroad. In different parts of the country and the the and then they even produced a report at the end and one of the things that came out of that was the creation of this ombudsperson's office that was set to um initially set to be an investigate body that would investigate uh complaints against canadian mining companies abroad and throughout that chapter and throughout her documentation of this of this history she's basically um putting together a narrative or a story that the Canadian state 
went through all these measures in order to um, make it look like they were dealing with this, right? And and to get people on board to say, look, we're 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 trying to find good solutions for everyone, for 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 the business side, the civil society side. We've created this office of the ombudsperson who's going to investigate and and perhaps even do things beyond investigating with this. So I think that's just one example I can think of from the second part of the book where they're trying where they sort of um, build consent. You know, like they they're trying to take all of this um, simmering rage in civil society around Canadian mining and turn it into like a, a more productive narrative where where the Canadian state is viewed as adhering to human rights protocols and and working towards a better kind of uh, relationship with communities uh, that are affected by the mining. Mm -hmm. Good, thank you, thanks. Yeah, I can add to that a little bit as well. And thanks Eleanor for the question, it's nice to see you. Um, and I'd say uh, when it comes to, uh, you know, the ongoing dispossession of Indigenous peoples in Canada, I think the state, one of the ways they try to assert consent or at least an appearance of consent is um, through Indigenous employment at extractive sites, um, targeting uh, Indigenous communities for employment. And, and this has a, a sort of interesting articulation when it comes to gender, because I'd say in particular, um, both in Canada and internationally, um, Canadian extractive companies have tried to target women, Indigenous women in Canada as, uh, as potential extractive employees. And then if they manage to attract women to the workforce and sort of plaster them over their kind of responsible development um, reporting and that kind of thing. Um, and what that ends up doing is that, of course, there is no actual consent. You know, the, the mines are, are being, are operating on indigenous land without anyone saying yes, but it does create an appearance of consent um, and can make dissent a little bit more complicated within communities. And it can make it look more sort of so-called responsible to sort of the general Canadian population. Yeah, great. I, I would follow up in, um... And I was just going to say, probably the best example is in Rebecca's chapter. Um, and also, we, we didn't really get to see it, but I say it too much. But like, I, I actually, I still read, and I guess it's blurry because I have my background blurred, but you can't see Rebecca's book, uh, Refracted <laughs> Economies. Um, so in, in, in Rebecca's chapter, and, and it's going to sound like a mansplaining for him speaking for a woman. I don't know, because Rebecca does theorize the relationship between uh, Indigenous women's bodies and the state. So borrowing from Audra Simpson, um, I think she cites, I can't remember if it's the, the, the article that Audra wrote, the state is a man. Um, so how the Canadian state requires, and, and one of the quotes that she has is, um, uh, Canada requires the death and so-called disappearance of Indigenous women to secure its sovereignty. And this is this is really in service of, I, I mean, there's a longer theoretical discussion that that Rebecca has in her chapter of, you know, just the, the symbolism of Indigenous women is deemed rapeable. She says, so too is Indigenous land inherently explorable and extractable. So she goes into the, the federal jurisdiction over it. Um, and that's a longer conversation than, than I could have here. I don't know if Rebecca, you wanted to to talk about that because it, it features more prominently, and I don't want to speak for you. Yeah, I think that's where that's where probably Eleanor, it, it would um, your question of like what is the the state the state's role in this because it seems to linger behind behind the scenes and, and is is the bodyguard of of um, or at least yeah it seems to be the bodyguard of organized capital. 
but but Rebecca, in terms of the question, I think I think your chapter is the one that this features more prominently. Like, thanks, Belden. Yeah, I um I appreciate that, and I think um I like how you said it. I don't think you were mansplaining, <laughs> um, but I think uh, the what what you were getting at is yeah. Um, I think in that part of the chapter, I was talking about how spaces are made extractable, especially when we're talking about extraction within Canada's borders um, and just how absurd it would be. You know, I'm, I'm downtown Kingston right now. If they suddenly said there's a deposit of something, you know, right underneath our houses, they're not, there probably is a deposit of something, but we're, we're not going to extract it. So again, it's like denaturalizing um, the, the idea of discovery. Like there are there is mineral uh, wealth underneath so many major cities that is never going to be dug up, but it will be dug up on on spaces that are sort of emptied by by colonial ideology, and that 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 is a gendered process too, for sure. Yeah. So the the production of of terra nullius um, and the claims to sovereignty that the, these are empty spaces. Uh, these are spaces that can be extracted. Um, even though there are humans present residing and occupying these particular spaces, does it really require the states like to say that? I don't, yeah. I mean, it, it does. It uses, I guess, the judicial arm, the judicial branch of, of the state. To yeah. Make, yeah. I mean, I, I don't think it's, I think I think the question of the state's role is really just an important one and getting at both like the coercive and consensual aspect. But I also think like it, it's it's very hard to 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 combat the the um, although people do, of course, the the coercive aspect and people put their bodies on the lines for sure. I think trying to figure out where those consensual um, where consent is being sort of promoted, whether that's through um, uh, development organization, like the, the development branches of the state or the ombuds or uh, office as, as Dave was suggesting, or through um, um, native affairs or like, it's, it's interesting also because that's often where you can start to find contradictions and just, I, 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 just the point that Rebecca was making a, a rather effective way of uh, drawing people's attention to this uh, by activists a, a few years ago in Kingston was to yellow tape off downtown parks um, and uh, put up signs that the, the, the parks um, uh, trees were um, uh, designated for foresting because of the value of the lumber there. And, and also like the, you know, the area, um, uh, sort of between between the two Queens campuses, that whole area was people had like a mail drop to say that appeared to be from the Ministry of um, the Environment or something like that to or forestry maybe just to say the trees on were about to be chopped down. And I think it really it's like looking for those places where you might find uh, a way to destabilize that consent that I think is so important. So. Yeah. I, I would point out um, where where consent is produced. Um, so we, we it's it's in Rebecca's book. Um, so it's not in here. Is um, is impact benefit agreements? 
so uh, the state facilitates them and just going to, um, sorry, I have to go to a second book, their own sort of book discussion. It's like, let me talk about a different book. Uh, is, is Rebecca's book uh, on um, uh, impact benefit agreements are not legislated, but they are expected practice. Um, so these corporations and, and it's kind of it's the state that's greasing the wheels of this is going in so you can acquire consent and here it's pretty express consent where you know from chiefs and councils which are Indian Act uh, is to go in uh, now that it's been normalized that this is alienable territory that uh, you will realize in some ways um, so it's it's the carrot before the stick so you have Coastal GasLink and Trans Mountain going through Indigenous territories where they are resisting it. So they have not taken the carrot, but rather the state comes in with a stick. So um, they haven't accepted the consents. They won't uh, get into consensual arrangements, normally contractual, which the state state would uphold through um, the laws and the common law. Um, so I think that's kind of where the state um, the state extracts consent. Um, Rebecca's study too talks about the um, the importance of these employment initiatives, and this comes out in her chapter too. Is that uh, when you have uh, produced or constructed the set of conditions where the only real choice, and you can't really say it's real consent. So, sort of in that um, John Stuart Mill. You know the consent to the 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 peasant is the peasant's consent really just like the only thing you have left to sell is your labor because you can no longer avail yourself of the commons uh they come in and they say well we'll give you jobs to get you out of out of poverty here now so it's either you stay on the reserve and you work in or at least service and it's it's kind of the underclass of employment too um it is doing house cleaning for the workers who get you know, quite good salaries, which they, you know, for the fly in, fly out. I'm explaining all of Rebecca's work for her, uh, but it's, it's just kind of, a, I'm a really big fan of it. Um, and when I see it is that uh, the state, uh, the state upholds through contract law and the normalization of, of rights regimes, I guess, uh, and then promoting these employment programs to say, don't worry, the, the mine will come in. It'll last 10 years. It'll be very extractive. There will be some social costs, normally through pollution. Uh, we'll give you an impact benefit agreement. So you'll usually get peanuts, the crumbs from the table. But uh, you also need this because uh, uh, you need the jobs. And that's your only choice. So you have to say yes to it. Um, you'll tacitly consent. Yeah. I don't know. Is that helpful? <laughs> awesome. Thank you both. Um, I do have a question, but you know, I don't know if it is too big. I haven't picked up my copy from the novel idea yet, but I will this weekend, hopefully. Uh, but you know, this is more of a question. So I'm not sure if it is part of the book, but this is uh, something that, you know, I thought I could ask to scholars, you know, who are working on this field. So how about kind of international or transnational solidarities, organizing, labor organizing, feminist organizing, environmental organizing, uh, independence, you know, national independence, etc. I mean, I think we saw that, I mean, this, Eleanor reminded me, you know, when we uh, 
we're talking about Vetsuatan and the kind of the international relationships uh, in solidarity with Vetsuatan. So I want to ask that, I don't know, again, you know, if it is part of the book, uh, but in general, your comments, I believe. I could say something quickly about it, and I, and and it's uh, I like the question because this didn't really come out in the talk yet. But I think several of the chapters um, are very careful to document the resistance to these processes, and um, not many, but maybe one or two of the chapters, like the one I mentioned earlier uh, by uh, Sakura Saunders, um, that one's probably the closest to what you're talking about in the sense that um, Canadian uh social movements and civil society organizations uh teaming up with and working closely together with um people in places like guatemala or or elsewhere and that's and she does document some of that kind of cross-national solidarity building that takes place because uh, i think that's been a really important part of any of the resistance that you see in my half of the book anyway the overseas cases um any like most of the resistance that you see is um facilitated by partnerships abroad so so uh solidarity networks here being reached out to from uh, the places that are being affected by the mines and and build and building that kind of transnational solidarity it's not like a central aspect of the book i don't think but you'll see it like a little bit here and there Awesome. Thank you all. I last call for questions, comments. Awesome. Can I just, sorry, I, I'm just going to yes. say one thing. Um, thank you everyone so much for this. Um, thank you also, Veldon, for giving a little intro to Rebecca's book. And just to like sneak peek next term, we might be hearing a little bit more about Rebecca's book. Um, so SNID fans, SNID community, um, pay attention to next term's dates because we might have Rebecca back to talk about her her new book. So I just wanted to throw that out there. Um, and awesome. yes, as has been said a few times, like please go to Novel Idea. The books are at Novel Idea. Um, support local independent bookstores and this amazing new book. Yeah, thank you all, you know, for being here. And thank you, Rebecca, for connecting us. Uh, this was awesome. I'm really excited to read the book. Thank you. Thank you for having us. It's uh... Yeah, it's good to be back. Yeah, thanks so much, everyone. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. This was great. Mm -hmm.